Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The Tory leadership race entered its final week as Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss doubled down on their economic pledges and pulled back some of the blue-on-blue attacks. Can you say tonight, read my lips, no new taxes on your administration, please? Yes, no new taxes. No new taxes. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. As you've been joining us over these summer weeks, we've been focusing on the Tory leadership race, the only story in town, and it's finally come to an end. Voting closed on Friday, we'll be looking back at the final hustings, what the candidates are saying on the economy, what a Liz Trust cabinet might look like, and whatever's going to happen to that Boris Johnson. To analyse, I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, political correspondent, Jasmine cameron Sleshy, and chief political commentator, Robert Shrimsley. George, Jasmine Roberts, lovely to see your faces. Mm, Great to see you as well. (laughs) So, George, the race has finally come to an end, but in some respects, it feels as if it came to an end almost a month ago. Not that much has happened this week, or in fact, the last couple of weeks, and the trajectory has really been set, with Liz Truss on a glide path now towards Downing Street and Rishi Sunak still making some interventions, but slowly giving up on the idea he's going to be Prime Minister. Yeah, that's certainly the sense. And I think in the last week of the campaign, you've got the sense, you mentioned in your intro there, Seb, that the blue-on-blue attacks have been wound back from some of the vitriolic stuff that was flying around earlier in the campaign. I remember this Truss's team calling Rishi Sunak a wounded stoat and allegations that Liz Truss from the, from the Sunak camp, that Liz Truss's economic policies would be the longest suicide note in history and so on. That's been wound back. And I think that's a sign that Rishi Sunak recognises he's going to lose. He doesn't really seem to be sort of going down as a terrible sort of carping loser. And we interviewed him earlier in the week, Seb, didn't we? And I think he even really mentioned Liz Trust by name at all. He's very keen to wind it back. So, yes, the expectation of the Sunak campus is going to lose and that Liz Trust will be walking through the door at number 10 next Tuesday. Well, Jasmine, you've had the joys of watching the final hostings event that took place in London in a big arena setting. I think it was probably the biggest one so far. What did you make of it? Were there any highlights of what was said between the two candidates? I mean, certainly what was clear, adding on from what George said, is that Rishi Sunak was really keen not to criticise Liz Truss. He was keen to highlight their similarities, talking about how they both had the same music tastes. And even though he was giving the whole rhetoric of when I become prime minister or this is what my government will do, it was clear that he is sort of subtly conceded defeat. There's a sense that he recognises the direction of where the race is going. What was striking, though, is that there seemed to be a lot of support for Rishi Sunak in the room. So you could even see on the on the video there was lots of cheer. He did seem to have a strong base of support in London. And I think that probably touches upon the fact that, you know, throughout the race, his campaign have continually said, yes, Liz Truss is ahead in the polls, but that doesn't necessarily reflect the nature of support. Rishi Sunak does have a base of support all across the country. So I thought that was quite interesting. In terms of Truss, I mean, 
She gave a few interesting news lines. She ruled out introducing any new taxes, which is consistent with her sort of low tax status that she's come to be known for. She also ruled out the prospect of energy rationing this winter. And I think it was the French PM warned that in France they could be looking at that. It's one of those things where I understand where it came from, but you do think she's setting herself all these red lines and you think, well, this could easily come back to bite her. Robert, normally candidates pull back the blue-on-blue attacks when they're looking for a job in the next government. And we saw this in the 2019 contest where Jeremy Hunt was much more gloves off Boris Johnson than we've seen with Sunak and Liz Truss. But in some ways, it just feels as if Ms Sunak may have slightly given up. And when George and I saw him all come on to that in a moment, um, he was still upbeat. He still was talking about as if he was going to be prime minister. But really, for most of August, I think really since the BBC debate when Liz Truss came out punching and Rishi Sunak was seen to have talked over her and mansplained to her at the end of July. Not a huge amount has happened since then. A couple of trip-ups, a couple of sound bites. Actually, you can take this back even further, which is the truth is that whoever the next leader of the Conservative Party was going to be, whenever Boris Johnson fell, it was going to be the more right-wing candidate in the contest. And Rishi Sunak was, until a year ago, the right-wing candidate. He was the person that the right of the party liked for the fact that he'd fought lockdowns. He seemed like a proper Thatcherite. He'd been an original Brexiter. And then, of course, with the tax rises and a couple of other stumbles, he lost that place. The entire story of this leadership contest, I think, when we look back at it, is the battle to have been the candidate of the right. And that's what Liz Truss achieved. There was a moment where it looked like she might not make it. But she did come through. And the moment she was the official candidate of the right in the ballot, it was, I think, to all extents and purposes over. And if it's not, at least we'll all have been wrong. So there's comfort in that. I think it's very interesting to question what Rishi Sunak will do in the long run. If you think he's not going to go into cabinet, which seems to be what he's saying, there are two options for him here. Either he looks at the Conservative Party and just thinks, well, I had a good go. I got to be Chancellor. I think I'm going to leave now. Maybe go back to America and make money. Maybe my wife can stop worrying about whether she's a non-dom or not. And, you know, I'm going to quit. Or he hangs around on the anticipation that this is going to go wrong for Liz Truss and there's going to be another leadership contest in two years' time and some of his critiques will seem a bit more wise then. We did have this week, George, Liz Truss pulling out with about 24 hours of notice from a BBC interview. Now, Mr Sunak has put himself home to far more media scrutiny than Liz Truss has, that he didn't sit down interview with Andrew Neil on economic policy, where I think he was widely seen to have held his own. He did the BBC sit down with Nick Robinson on primetime. And on Monday evening, it was announced that Liz Truss was pulling out. And it was obviously pretty bad form, given that BBC One schedule had been torn up for her. From her campaign's perspective, I can understand why they did it, because she would have to face half an hour of questions. What are you going to do about the cost of living? What's your plan for the energy crisis? And so far, they've tried to say as little as possible. And the sense that we've kind of got from inside her campaign is that she hasn't fully decided herself what she's going to do, hence why it can't really be made public. Yes, I mean, look, it's good for democracy when candidates running for high office are subjected to intensive grilling, not the kind of one or two questions you get at a hustings, but sustained questioning over a period of time on certain subjects. So it's regrettable she didn't do it, but I can understand why she didn't do it. You know, she's the front runner. She's got nothing to gain and lots to lose by, well, something to lose at least if she goes head to head with Nick Robinson and trips up. She did agree to be interviewed by you, George. So, I mean, she did the important thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly <laughs> so. So I can understand why she didn't do it. And you've got a real sense this week that what she has been doing, she's been down at Chevening or House in Greenwich planning her agenda for government planning, who's going to go into the cabinet and actually just really getting down to the business of thinking what on earth she's going to get to when she gets presented with this appalling sort of in-tray, which someone said to me this week was had everything in it apart from Armageddon. So you can understand what, why she's doing that. And just from a parochial point of view, 
her team have basically stopped picking up the phone to journalists in the lobby, which is an interesting sign. They just, but they're basically now into full preparation for governing mode. And we know that Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, has been in and out of Chevening this week. And you always get to that in this stage of the contest because the changeover is going to be pretty quick when Boris Johnson goes. He will go and see the Queen at Balmoral on Monday, which is a constitutional change. Normally, the whole process is very well choreographed from the cars, leaving Downing Street, sweeping up the mall, going to see the Queen. And then when that prime minister goes, the next car comes in and goes out again. But due to the Queen's health at her ripe old age, it's now taking place in Barramora, so it'll be a lot more planes in Aberdeen Airport than the traditional handover. But we know Mr. Cases has had conversations with Rishi Sunak, although one gets the sense they're maybe not as intense or detailed as they are with Liz Truss. Yes, I think it's probably rather similar to the conversations the Cabinet Secretary had with Jeremy Corbyn ahead of the 2019 election, that they're going through the motions a bit. But yeah, I mean, Simon Case has been holding their talks because they are going to have to hit the ground running. As you said, Seb, Liz Truss, if she wins, will become Prime Minister on Tuesday. And then you're straight into the preparations for an emergency budget or a fiscal event, whatever you want to call it, probably two weeks later. And the problems are piling up. And, you know, it's important for Simon Case to be doing the preparations. also important that the work that's been done in the Treasury in anticipation of the new government coming in and the, the numbers that are going to be presented to Liz Truss, I suspect, will make her hair stand on end because a lot of the promises she's been making on taxation during the course of the campaign and some of the vainglorious briefings given by some of her allies about halving the rates of VAT, I think will probably fall apart the moment they come into the first contact with reality. Now, Jasmine, you did mention Rishi Sunak getting that quite good response at the London hustings. And of course, you might say, well, this is London, it's the more liberal end of the Tory party. So that's maybe not entirely surprising. But there has been a sense that Liz Truss has improved her debate performance. That I think if you go back to the beginning of the campaign, she was more stilted and less comfortable. Whereas bit by bit, it feels like she's eased into the role. But as soon as she becomes prime minister on Wednesday, that's I think 24 hours into the job, she's going to have to do her first prime minister's questions. That is going to be a big tough ask for her. We've seen Liz Truss at the dispatch box before, but PMQs is another level entirely. And I would not want to be her debate prep team, even though they've got through the hustings, to have to get ready for that big moment. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in saying that throughout the leadership contest, she has gained confidence. And definitely looking at her in you know, hustings earlier this week, she was smiling, she was laughing, she really was enjoying it. And I do think there is an element of, you know, you're preaching to the converted. You've got your audience, you know, you know what they want, you can tell them what they want, and it's all very straightforward. I do think when she is confronted with a busy House of Commons chamber where she's got people jeering at her and really questioning, you know, whether she's clued up on some of the economics, whether she's clued up on when it comes to things like, as you say, cutting. VAT, I think she could potentially struggle. I can imagine her actually being quite robotic at the dispatch box, and I think it will take a while for her to actually get comfortable in it. The one thing that you've seen, if you're an ambitious politician trying to work your way up to the top, and you've spent about 10 years in cabinet, often with Prime Minister Jennifer Gruth, and you're always thinking about your career, you're often thinking you're about you're often being tipped for the sack, you get very nervous and cagey and robotic. I think one of the things you're seeing with Liz Truss is the sense of someone a bit unleashed and that she can finally be herself. She doesn't have to worry about what she's saying in terms of annoying a boss or getting sacked. Um, she'll have to you know, worry about the voters. I was to say but, the electorate does no, but, come but, into but, that but, at some but, point. But that, that's not quite as summary a judgment as annoying a prime minister. And I think she's just relaxed into the thought that I'm going to be me now and I can be the person I want to be, and I believe I am. Now, that doesn't get her off the hook of all the massive problems she's got, but I do think it's a sort of liberation for a politician. Mm. Now, George, let's look at the economic state of the picture. You mentioned that inbox, and of course, above everything else, is going to be the cost of living crisis, because last week we had that off-gem announcement with energy bills soaring in the coming weeks, and I think 
you and me and every other reporter from Westminster been trying to get a handle on what exactly Liz Truss is going to do, where she spent most of this week ruling things out. That First of all, she said that she would not increase taxes, and you heard that clip at the beginning of the programme with Nick Ferrari trying to echo George H.W. Bush there with no new taxes. She also ruled out blackouts, which was a quite odd thing, given that that might be something that could well have to happen, managed power situations later in the year. Yeah, I mean, she was quite busy ruling out a load of things, including a windfall tax as well. If you speak to people in Rishi Sunak's team, they think that the package of measures that this trust is suggesting she's going to announce in this emergency budget could top £100 billion, a huge amount of money, most of which it looks like it's going to have to be funded by borrowing. And we've seen some quite concerning reports from the markets this week suggesting that the international investors, kindness of strangers and all that, starting to lose a bit of confidence in the future trajectory of the British economy. So that, she's in an extremely dangerous position. Just on the windfall tax, which I think is a really important point, I think this is where she's going to get into real trouble in this emergency budget. She's already promised to reverse the plan to increase corporation tax from 19% to 25%. So that's £17 billion going back to profitable large companies, including energy companies. And she's ruling out a windfall tax. Now, whatever she does to help businesses and households through the winter, by definition, it won't be enough. And Labour will say, hang on, you've got some money there which you're prepared to give to big businesses and banks and energy companies. You're not prepared to give to poor families struggling to heat their homes. And I think that is a big problem. And don't forget the reason why Rishi Sunak announced a windfall tax back in the spring was because the policy was hugely popular. It's going to be even more so over this winter. Robert, we saw some leaked documents in Bloomberg this week that had an internal treasury projection that said that some of the energy companies could be posed in total to make profits of £170 billion due to the increase in, obviously, the amount of people are paying in fuel. When you look at that, compared to what George was saying about handing tax cuts to big businesses, it's almost going to be impossible for her to not do something like that. So why do you think she's ruled out all these things that she could end up having to do and take a massive credibility well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's exactly right. And the corporation tax point is an interesting one. She's pledged to, to reverse the corporation tax increases. But she could, for example, choose to stagger them and say, look, I made this promise, but look where we are. I'm going to do it in two goes so we don't lose all the money. The one point I would say is that whatever the economics of this, the politics of what she needs to do now, are very clear. She has one advantage coming into this package that she's going to announce, which is under expectation. People expect her not to do enough. They expect her to be a small state, conservative, not interventionist enough, and that she will disappoint. And that's an advantage because she can then surprise. The fact is, what she does in her energy package is going to determine the entire future of her premiership. It's as simple as that. If she gets this wrong, she will not recover. Her premiership will not recover. If she gets it right... The people who are just beginning to pay attention to her, and most people don't know anything about her really, the people who just begin to pay attention, their first impression of her will be positive. And that will give her a grace period to do other things. So the politics of this are she has to go big, she has to borrow big, she has to spend big, and she has to not give hostages to the Labour Party, both on the windfall tax point that you were both making, and Keir Starmer's plan to cap energy costs, which has lots of economic problems with it, but has a beautiful political simplicity to it. So I think she has to go big, and I think anyone who's good enough at politics to get to be Prime Minister knows this. Well, one of the suggestions that came out this week was that Liz Truss was going to slash VAT, not just on energy bills, but across the board, potentially from 20% to 50 or even 10%. She was asked about this at the hustings on Thursday evening. Would you cut VAT from 20 to 15%? I am not going to predict what a putative chancellor... I'm not ruling things in and out. I am not sitting here 
writing a yes. future budget. Well, that kind of cut, Jasmine, would play into Liz Truss's worldview because, of course, back at the beginning of August, she told the FT no handouts can be focused on supply-side reform and tax cuts. So cutting VAT would fit in line with that. On the other side, I think Rishi Sunak's campaign said it would be very regressive. It would have an overwhelming effect of helping richer people and would not necessarily help those who are on low or no incomes at all. Yes, there was a lot of aggressive briefing um, over the weekend suggesting that her team are looking at cutting VAT. Obviously, Trust came out on the hustings and said that she wouldn't really deny or confirm it. I do think there is a sense of sort of putting out these policies and briefing it and sort of just seeing where it lands and getting a sense among Tory members, Tory MPs, about how they're feeling about it and how economists and the opposition are reacting to it. And I think she is smart to rule nothing in but rule nothing out because there is a sense that she can say, if she's PM, she can say, well, actually, I've looked at the figures and this is actually the situation and she can adapt and move accordingly. And as Robert said, you know, how she responds to this will be defining for her. And I suspect she wants to give herself as many options when she enters through the doors of number 10. And one of the things that really surprised me during those hustings as well was this issue of energy blackouts, George, because we've seen that the French President Emmanuel Macron has warned that there could have to be managed energy cuts in the winter due to supply shortages. Liz Truss ruled out blackout. Rishi Sunak did not. Uh, we, we shouldn't rule anything out because the challenges oh. that we face at the, with this crisis are significant. All right. And as many European countries are looking at, how we can all optimise our energy usage. That is a sensible thing for us to be doing as a country. Well, it's not just a sensible thing for Britain to do as a country, but it's also government policy at the moment because the government has drawn up contingency plans for four days of energy rationing in January, if things get tough, as a way of managing the supply and managing the economy and business and household energy supplies through the winter. So if Liz Truss is saying that she wouldn't, in extremists, have implement the government's own policy, well, the question is, what would she do? I mean, if energy is short, what do you do in that situation? And Rishi Sunak's absolutely right. But again, it's one of those things where I think probably Liz Trust, I agree with Robert's point that she feels like she's unchained and she's freewheeling a bit here. I think at the back of her mind, she thinks that a lot of people think, well, that was, that was then, that was a Tory leadership contest over the summer. Things are different now and she's having to react to real-time emergencies. So if the worst comes to the worst, you'll have to eat her words for sure. Do you think that's what's going to happen, Robert? Because the traditional groupthink is that you say whatever you need to in a leadership contest to win over the party's base. You know, we know Sir Keir Starmer did this in Labour by making a whole bunch of quite left-wing pledges that then he had to jettison when he tried to move towards the centre. Will Liz Truss do the same? And if she does, does she pose herself a political problem when the right of the Tory party then lose faith in her? I don't actually think she is going to attack to the centre anything like as much as people suggest for exactly the reasons you've had. A, this is what she believes. She is fundamentally a small state deregulation conservative, low tax conservative, what she basically believes in. B, the people who've put her in number 10 believe it too. And the right have shown themselves in the Conservative Party to be highly aggressive to prime ministers who let them down. They're, they, I mean, they're constantly on the look for the next betrayal, which they always believe to be about 18 months away. So there's all those issues. I think she's got some latitude with those people and her party to fix this particular crisis because everyone can see what a political catastrophe it is if you get it wrong and then go back to her agenda. So I, what I would expect is that we will see in an ideal world for her two stages to the trust premiership. The first is the get the hell out of this crisis stage where you do whatever you have to do, you borrow, you spend just to get the country over the hump and then you prepare for the election 
and saying, look, we've had these terrible crises which we've solved, but now we need to get back to proper conservative agendas, you know, seize the Brexit opportunities, deregulate, cut taxes. As long as the right of her party think that that's where she'll go back to, she has a bit of latitude, and I think that's certainly where she wants to go. Well, George, this takes us finally on to what the Trust government is going to look like. Mm. So we've got a fairly decent sense now of the top lineup that Kwasi Kwarteng is all but nailed on to be the Chancellor. Suella Braverman, the former Attorney General, is going to be the Home Secretary. James Cleverly is tipped for the Foreign Office. And you've got a sense that it is going to be a similarly right-wing government to Boris Johnson's with a bit of reach out to the left and centre of the Tory party, but fundamentally not that different. What do you make of the names we're hearing so far? People in the trust camp talk about her first cabinet being a cabinet of supporters, by and large, but as you say, with maybe one or two people from the Sunak team to give a broad church vibe, but at the same time filling some of the junior and middle ranks with people who weren't on on her side to give the impression that their future rewards are a way to play the game and support her. So I think that's right. You're right, I think Kwasi Kwarteng for sure into the Treasury. It looks quite like Jacob Rees-Mogg, traditionally a bit of a climate sceptic, could end up being the business secretary. was obviously interesting to FT readers. There's still a little bit of uncertainty to think about the Home Secretary's job. There are some suggestions that this trust might surprise everyone and put Tom Tugendhat into the Home Office, which we certainly quite surprising if she were to do that. But James Cleverly, yes. Interesting what the role that David Frost might or might not take. Um, he obviously feels he's, his talents deserve some uh, government department to run, but whether he's going to be offered that, I think it's looking a little unlikely. It would be very much in her own image, for sure. And Robert, I think the sense that I've got from Team Trust is that they will do a bit of reach out to Sunak supporters in the junior ministerial ranks, but the cabinet is going to be dominated by her ideological allies, people like Kwasi Kwarteng, we were talking about, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, but also people who were loyal and got behind her leadership bid quite early on. So the likes of Brandon Lewis, Tom Tukinhat, who we mentioned as well. Actually, I think she's right to do this. You can't have people in the cabinet who basically think your entire economic strategy is nonsense and are on the record. Like Rishi Sunak, for example. And are on the record as saying so. And I can see why she doesn't want them. There is a problem for her in the Conservative Party in this respect, which is that it is slowly shedding layers of politicians, the whole Brexit fury, Boris Johnson swept away a whole tier of actually rather capable ministers, some quite attractive politicians who appealed beyond the Conservative base. And what you're going to see with Team Sunak is the danger of something, another raft of politicians from what would now be considered the mainstream. Obviously, the mainstream moves right a little bit every time there's a Conservative leadership election, who are also being swept away. People with quite a bit of experience. And so I think, again, there's a danger for her in hollowing out the talent pool of the Conservative Party. So if she doesn't do, as you suggest, and I think you're right, put Team Sunak people into the more junior roles, the next rung down, then I think she's storing up a future problem for herself. But at the start, she may as well go with people who actually buy into what she's saying. Well, Jasmine, finally, obviously, Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister for a few more days, the time of recording, but he's been on a mini farewell tour this week. So he's been out to Suffolk to sign off on the Sizewell Sea Nuclear Power Plant, giving a speech on energy security, stared into a hole in the middle of a field to look at gigabit broadband. But the same question everyone was asking is, is he going to come back? And does he envisage returning as Prime Minister? Will you rule out a comeback, people are People are far more interested, in my view, than my just... I, I humbly submit to you, okay? You, you can disagree if you, if you like. But I think, on the whole, people in this country are more interested in their gigabit broadband than they are in, in the fate of this or that 
politician. Yeah, so I mean, it's quite interesting that Johnson has been on this sort of whirlwind tour to cement his legacy. It feels a little bit artificial in the sense that people will have made their minds up about Johnson a long time ago, whether or not he stands in a hard helmet or gives a speech. I mean, it doesn't really make any difference at this point. But he's been asked several times, as you say, about you know what the future holds. There is a sense among Johnson and his supporters that he was turfed out too early. And so there are all these questions about whether he sits in the back benches and plots a return to power whether he you know, goes on the speaking circuit and makes a ridiculous amount of money. I think whatever he does, I think there's going to be a large Boris-shaped hole in the Conservative Party. I think he is someone who is such a well-known figure. We knew him as mayor, we knew him as the gaff-prone foreign secretary, we knew him as Mr Brexit, Mr PM. He's such a prominent figure that whatever he says and whatever intervention he makes will make news and will make problems for his successor. And I can imagine him making some quite strategic interventions when he feels like bits of his legacy are being challenged. If he feels like the trust administration isn't doing enough on levelling up or tackling the situation in Ukraine. I could very well see him, you know, doing a column, doing an interview that puts himself back in the news headlines and we're all going to be waiting and watching. Could not agree with that more. I think we certainly have not heard the last of Boris Johnson by any stretch of the imagination. And on that, George, could I cast your memories back to an earlier stage of your career when <laughs> John Major succeeded Margaret Thatcher and during the first two years of his premiership has suffered from the backseat driver problem of Mrs Thatcher intervening, particularly mm. on the Maastricht Europe debate and making his life very difficult. Is that what we're going to see with Boris Johnson and Liz Truss? Yes. I think it's probably the answer to that. And Robert and I remember this well. The annual Tory conference, the psychodrama of when Margaret Thatcher was going to turn up, was she going to go onto the platform, how it was going to be managed. It'll be like that all uh, over yeah. again with Boris Johnson, except for, of course, he'll have access to the Daily Telegraph and a newspaper column or wherever he ends up writing it. He'll have access to the media, which will lap up every single word he utters. Whereas Margaret Thatcher actually only made a few sort of targeted interventions. I mean, I think that's exactly right about the media. He will be a problem for her on the back benches, but I don't think he's got much chance of coming back. I think the caravan moves on quite quickly and he's going to want to make money and that will diminish him further. He's not coming back, in my opinion. And of course, that's before we get to the privileges investigation in the autumn and the tricky matter of did Boris Johnson mislead the House of Commons? And if he's found to be guilty on that, that could lead to a recall petition that could lead to a by-election. So by the end of the year, he could not only be out of Downing Street, but out of Parliament as well. But and not out of pocket. But not out of pocket. And as Jasmine said, we will still be hearing from him on every conceivable topic. Well, George, Jasmine and Robert, thank you so much for joining in the studio. That's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast and you know where to find us, you can subscribe and get episodes every Saturday morning. You can leave us a nice positive review and ratings. Thank you for sticking with us over the summer months. We'll be back to our normal format next week, looking into what we presume will be the beginning of the Liz Truss era. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.